I'm so pleased to be here this morning, and I want to thank Clark Irvin for inviting me. And I understand that I'm the third of three grant historians who has spoken to you. And one of the things that struck me in reviewing the, the previous two is that we're all from the Western theater. <laughs> and that seems right, doesn't it? The title of my talk, for those of you who have the handout, is U.S. Grant and the Surrender at Appomattox. Some of you might know that I published a book a few years ago called U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. And I came up to the uh, church this morning and noticed that I was speaking on Grant's presidency, but there are many... Uh, there are many uh, themes that, in, that is in today's lecture, this morning's short lecture, and preparing for the presidency. Uh, and that's what, we'll, uh, that's what we'll aim for. So I hope it won't be too much of a disappointment uh, for you. On April 9th, 2015, the 150th anniversary of the surrender by Confederate Commander Robert E. Lee to Union Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant was commemorated. I wonder if I could take this out and just fool around with it that way. On that day in 2015, the approximate, uh, at about 2 o'clock, the approximate time of the surrender, bells rang out across the nation at schools, historic sites, churches, temples, and selected public buildings for four minutes, one for each year of the bloody conflict. I didn't hear it at UCLA, I'm disappointed to say. <laughs> the National Park Service coordinated all this and put this statement on their website, quote, some communities may ring their bells in celebration of freedom or a restored union, others as an expression of mourning and a moment of silence for the fallen. How is that for pleasing everyone? Well, that is the spirit of Appomattox. On that day, April 9th, 2015, the 150th anniversary of the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, 10,000 people gathered at the National Historical Park to hear speeches from historians and national park officials. They viewed battle reenactments and a restaging of the surrender, all with a background of Civil War tunes, Civil War era, era music. The ceremonies attending the commemoration, which actually unfolded over a whole week, reflected some different perspectives than in previous eras. And those, those uh, different perspectives reflected the changes in our culture and society over the past half century. Previously ignored topics such as the role of slavery, the story of emancipation, the extent of civilian suffering, insights into the life of the common soldier, all of those were highlighted in the museum exhibits at Appomattox. They were featured in the books and pamphlets on sale in the store and included in some of the reenactments that were displayed. However, one facet of the commemoration remained exactly the same. 
the surrender that took place at the McLean House in the village of Appomattox Courthouse still stands as a vital monument to American history, a luminous event marking the end of a period of massive bloody warfare. Two of the greatest figures of the war, Grant and Lee, met in an intensely dramatic moment, exhibiting the flawless etiquette that captivated generations of Americas. A national myth of reconciliation was established, was enshrined in pictures, films, fiction, and history textbooks. Ever since, Appomattox has endured as a symbol of a peaceful reunion. And for those who want to immerse themselves in the period, a pilgrimage to that place is absolutely a necessity. Historians throughout the sesquicentennial years have been revisiting and revising Civil War history, and the surrender of Appomattox has not escaped scholarly scrutiny. In fact, it's our jobs, it's our job as an historian to contest the previous generations of what historians say and write, or else we wouldn't have anything to do. <laughs> It may still be the place where history ended Appomattox and where it began anew. The terrible Civil War was over, the fighting stopped, the armies disbanded, but the surrender's magnanimous promise of an easy reunion proved wrong. What followed was a violent and bitter, uh, <clears throat> bitter struggle over the shape of Reconstruction. Some have called the price of Reconstruction that resulted in Jim Crow and 100 years of black disfranchisement too high. Was it a shameful capitulation as some scholars are describing it now? Was it a shameful capitulation on the part of the United States? And did that capitulation begin with the terms offered at Appomattox? When all is said and done, I believe Appomattox will continue to reign in American historical memory as a powerful symbol of the broken country's path to one peaceful nation. Yet we as, as a country, I believe, also need to shed light on the surrender's complicated history, the history behind the myth. It seems appropriate after the close of the sesquicentennial and beginning the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction, it seems appropriate to revisit the surrender agreement to think about what it meant and to appreciate the story anew. And that is what I'm going to do today, this morning, in my short lecture. I'm going to give you a very brief introduction uh, <clears throat> to U.S. Grant and the background to Appomattox, um, I take it that <clears throat> you're all pretty primed about U.S. Grant anyway. <clears throat> I will look at the, the campaign, and this will all be briefly, and the surrender at Appomattox, and then conclude by giving you my thoughts on the meaning of Grant's surrender at Appomattox and really about how Appomattox figured in to Reconstruction and how Appomattox, that surrender, what that meant to understanding Ulysses S. Grant in terms of what he brought to the presidency because he was 
in some ways, one of the most prepared human beings in our history to be president, in other ways not so. <clears throat> I only knew what was in my mind, General Ulysses S. Grant said, describing his feelings as he sat down to write out the terms of surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia on April 9, 1865. Somehow that sentence makes it sound so simple. It was not. That early day in April was surely the height of Grant's military career, cementing his reputation as a magnanimous warrior, as well as foreshadowing his post-war role, including his two terms as president overseeing Reconstruction policy. As I have done the research looking at all three of Grant's surrenders, he was the only general in the Civil War Army to conduct three surrenders of entire armies, I see more and more that there is an argument to be made that Grant emerged from the Civil War as a soldier statesman, much in the same way that we, um, that we would look at the career of George Washington or Dwight D. Eisenhower. Twice before Appomattox, Grant accepted the surrender of a major Confederate force. At Fort Donelson, Tennessee in 1862, and at Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1863. In those two campaigns, Grant was relentless in pursuing victory, but once secured, he displayed a generosity, anticipating the more celebrated generosity of the 1865 surrender. That generosity reflected his and President Abraham Lincoln's desire for an easy reunion. Let them up easy, Lincoln said at the end, meaning the white Confederates, while insisting that the people of the rebellious states swear a loyalty oath to the United States and accept emancipation. A word about surrender. In the context of the Civil War, a military or political surrender is defined as giving up something valuable. That could be a fortress, an army, a defined a territory, a country, a set of demands to an enemy. At Appomattox, Grant was already well aware of the complications of surrenders, both as a process, but also as a ceremony replete with symbolism that carried implications for the future. In other words, in all three of his sur surrenders, he embedded symbols and gestures of reconciliation and reunion. When Lincoln asked for volunteers in 1861, as you know by now, Grant was clerking in his father's leather goods stores in Galena, Illinois. He responded eagerly to his country's call and advanced to rapid fame, when you think of it, from lieutenant colonel to major general in about a year and a half. Rapid fame doesn't quite cover it. But he was in the Western Theater, where I hail from, the far out Western Theater, scoring de decisive and morale-raising victories in 1862 and 1863 at Fort Donelson, Vicksburg, and Chattanooga. At both Fort Donelson where he earned the nickname of Unconditional Surrender Grant, and at Vicksburg, Mississippi, Grant, as I mentioned before, combined these devastating military victories with a surrender 
uh, pointing toward the reunion of the two warring countries. In other words, and I want to make this point, his actions suggested that winning the peace would be as meaningful as winning the war. And there was another portion to this that I'm not going to talk about today, that, but is a part of my work, and that is the, the experience that he brought to the end of the war and to the post-war period of, of occupation, of implementing policies for the, uh, for the people of the territories that were conquered by the United States. And he knew, perhaps more than anything el anyone else, the complications. Lincoln had rejoiced that he had finally found his general and brought the Western general east. Grant was promo promoted to lieutenant general in early 1864. Grant and Lincoln, both from, from Illinois, had never met each other personally until March 9th, 1864. As you probably already know, they enjoyed a close relationship. While Lincoln developed skills in military strategy that guided his ultimate national strategy of saving the Union, Grant developed the political skills that complemented his military abilities with the same ultimate goal in mind. Ulysses S. Grant had become the premier soldier state statesman of the conflict because he developed a national perspective with future reunion in mind, echoing his president, although he knew unlike Lincoln's other generals that we could name, but I won't name, who thought they were the boss. <clears throat> Grant assumed direction of the entire Union military effort in the last year and a half of the war. That spring, in the Overland Campaign, Grant, at the head of the Army of the Potomac, and Lee, commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, waged titanic battles across the Virginia countryside. The cost was high, as we all know in this room. It ended with, when Grant crossed the James River and began to lay siege at Petersburg, Virginia. While Grant conducted the Peter, Petersburg siege, his two principal lieutenants, William Tecumseh Sherman and Philip Sheridan, took the war to first Georgia and then Virgi and Sheridan in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley conquering territory, defeating rebel armies, destroying large parts of the southern countryside. Their combined, combined victories vindicated Grant's strategic vision and guaranteed Lincoln's re-election, bringing the rebellion to its knees. Indeed, as 1864 turned into 1865, Union victory seemed increasingly eminent. Despite the Confederate leadership's continued defiance to give up. During this time, Lincoln and Stanton and Grant were in constant communication. There was a lot of anxiety. Remember, unlike the people sitting in this room today, they did not know how the war was going to turn out. There were all kinds of scenarios uh, that were flying about peace, uh, uh, opportunities that, that were problematic as far as Lincoln and his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, were concerned. But <clears throat> when he did talk with Grant, and he spoke with him many times and visited him at City Point, the headquarters in Virginia, uh, uh, Grant's headquarters in Virginia, he told Grant 
that he wanted to keep control over the political terms of surrender and Grant's role was limited only to military matters. Grant, in other words, Grant was to handle the surrender of Lee's army. Whenever and wherever that surrender was to take place, the site was unknown, it was going to be the surrender of one army to another. Lincoln said this to Grant, quote, I will deal with the political questions and negotiate for peace. Your job is to fight. Remember, in, in the northern view, the political view, the stance adopted by Lincoln, the South was not a country. There was no such thing as the Confederate States of America. Grant had no right to step in and negotiate as if he and Robert E. Lee could, could create terms for peace. Lincoln would do that, and it had to, it had to be done piecemeal. Every single army would, would uh, surrender separately, every single Confederate army. But there was no doubt in anybody's mind who were the two big guys in this war. This was Lee and Grant at this time. The surrender of Lee's army would be immense, and it would set the template for the rest. The Appomattox campaign began, began on March 25, 1865, and it marked the end of the road for the Confederate nation. After 10 months of siege, federal forces broke through the defensive lines around Petersburg and Richmond. And in early, by early April, Lee, who had fled Richmond and his army, was all of his supply lines were cut off and he was trapped. By April 7th, Grant remarked to one of his staff, I have a great mind to summon Lee to surrender. And he sent a note to Lee with that effect. And he said this, the result of the last week must convince you of the hopelessness of further resistance on the part of the Army of Northern Virginia in this struggle. I feel that it is so and regard it as my duty to shift from myself the responsibility of any further effusion of blood by asking of you the surrender of the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee, cut off from his supplies with no obvious escape route, replied, and he asked Grant to outline this proposed surrender. And he, Grant replied to him immediately, quote, I would say that peace being my great desire, there is but one condition I would insist upon, namely that both the men and officers surrendered shall be disqualified from taking up arms again against the government of the United States. Lee, Lee at this point, at this, this small piece of time on April 8th, decided to, to tell Grant, I'm not ready to surrender yet. And, and uh, but I will meet you to discuss peace negotiations. That is exactly what Lincoln didn't want to do. Grant said, sorry, it's, it, we can only meet to discuss the surrender of your army. So Lee went back to his camp. He polled his commanders, and all of his commanders were, uh, were in favor of surrendering. And Lee made that famous statement then there is nothing left for me to do but go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. Here we can admire Lee's decision to surrender 
rather than to disband or, or wage guerrilla warfare. All of these options were certainly on the minds of Lincoln, his cabinet, and Grant at this time. And that was the best response from their point of view. Grant and his staff, on the morning of April 9, 1865, rode down the road toward Appomattox Courthouse, intending on joining General Philip Sheridan. It was Palm Sunday, a week before Easter, the most sacred holiday on the Christian calendar. I believe Palm Sunday this year is on Sunday. Is that right? At, yes. Didn't I say April 9th? Yes. Uh, sorry. At about 11 a.m. on April 9th, Grant and his staff, who were riding on horse, stopped to rest. They, um, they watched an aide uh, uh, ride toward them and delivered, delivering an envelope. This envelope contained Lee's reply to Grant's most recent, recent communique, and the general read the message, and this is what it said. General, I therefore request an interview at such time and place as you may designate to discuss the terms of the surrender of this army in accordance with your offer. A little after 1.30 p.m. on that day, Grant and, and his staff rode into the tiny village of Appomattox Courthouse, where they were shown to the two-story brick farmhouse. Do you know that? Do you know who owned that? Wilmer McLean, who lived in Manassas in the battlefield in 1861, never wanted to deal with a battle again. So he went into the remote end of the world, southwest Virginia, in Appomattox. But the war found him in the end and at the end, and they took his house and everything in it, too. Lee arrived first at the resident with his aide, Colonel Charles Marshall. They seated themselves in the parlor and waited. Thirty minutes later, Grant dismounted his horse, Cincinnati, and climbed the seven steps into the house. In the room to the left of the entrance, Lee and Grant shook hands. This was the first time they had met in the Civil War. Lee returned to his chair next to a pine table, and in the handout you have a depiction of this moment. Um, he he uh, returned to his chair that was next to a pine table with a pedestal base and a square white marble top. Grant drew up a leatherback seat and also sat down, placing his gloves and hat at a nearby wooden trestle on a nearby wooden trestle table with an oval top and two spool legs on each side. He was about 10 feet from Lee. Outside, thousands of soldiers watched and waited. All in the room were aware of the extraordinary contrast between the two commanders. Lee, resplendent, aristocratic looking, and General Grant, well, just one ordinary dude, for sure. <laughs> General Lee attired in his best uniform. Grant did not have on his best uniform at all, but his preferred casual field uniform that, uh, and that was nicely attired with mud splatters. The two commanders discussed rather awkwardly uh, the, their experience in the Mexican War. And Lee finally just said, well, enough of this. Tell me about your terms again. 
Grant responded that the terms were exactly the same as earlier indicated in his letter of April 8th that I had read to you. And again, I want to make the point this was a military surrender as he described it. Men and officers who surrendered were to be paroled and could not take, take up arms again until exchanged properly. Grant observed his counterpart's face during this conversation, remembering that, quote, what General Lee's feelings were, I do not know. As he was a man of much dignity with an impassive face, it was impossible to say whether he felt inwardly glad that the end had finally come. Grant prepared to write out the terms. When I put my pen to paper, he recalled of this moment, I did not know the first word that I should make use of in writing the terms. I only knew what was in my mind, and I wished to express it clearly so that there could be no mistaking it. And there was no mistaking it. Acutely aware of Lincoln's desire for leniency, which was his too, Grant rejected any fancy words for a straightforward and simple explanation of the process by which the officers and men of the Army of Northern Virginia would stack their arms and record their paroles. As I wrote on, Grant explained, the thought occurred to me that the officers had their own private horses and effects, which were important to them, but of no value to us. Also, that it would be an unnecessary humiliation to call upon them to deliver their side arms. So then, these items were to be excluded from the weapons and properties to be turned over to the federal forces. And then there was the final part of Grant's letter to Lee, which is also in your packet. The famous last sentence is as follows. Each officer and man will be allowed to return to their homes, not to be disturbed by the United States authority, so long as they observe their parole and the laws in force where they may reside. That sentence guaranteed a secure future for all Confederate soldiers, including the highest military officials, such as Robert E. Lee. It was of vital importance in ending the war and shaping the peace to follow. Grant looked at his handy, handy work, made a few corrections, and then, um, then it was Lee's turn to review it. When Lee came to the end, he looked up and remarked, this will have a very happy effect upon my army. And Lee had one more request. Would Grant consider letting the enlisted men keep their animals for spring farming? Grant agreed, prompting Lee to say, quote, it will be very gratifying and it will do much toward conciliating our people. Around 3 p.m., Grant and Lee parted ways. They shook hands and the ex-Confederate commander left the house and called for his horse, Traveler. When Lee mounted, Grant lifted his hat in salute, without, in salute without speaking, as did the other Union officers present. Lee did the same and then rode away. Grant went to his headquarters. News of the surrender spread quickly through the Union camps. Soon thousands of soldiers were cheering and throwing their hats into the air. A 100-gun salute commenced, but Grant stopped it immediately, stating, quote, the war is over. The rebels are our countrymen again, 
and the best sign of rejoicing after the victory will be to ab abstain from all demonstrations in the field. No sustained celebration, no victory dance was allowed. Winning the peace was just as vital as winning the war. Although several more armies would still surrender, the meeting between Grant and Lee at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, on April 9, 1865, Palm Sunday, is considered the end of the Civil War. And when Grant did go to Washington, President Lincoln expressed his unqualified support with the terms he had given Lee. The North celebrated, although in that week, Grant's surrender agreement provoked furious co controversy uh, among many in the United States because many in the United States were talking about traitors, treason trials, and hanging. And to them, the agreement seemed ludicrously generous. These feelings, however, were checked by Lincoln's steadfast determination to stand behind Grant's peace agreement. Indeed, despite misgivings, the overwhelming evidence suggests that the majority of lo loyal citizens conflated, combined, and treated the Appomattox peace terms with, with the securing of Union victory. The deeply Christian nation exulted in and commemorated the connection between what they de deemed to be two sacred occasions, and that is the last picture, I believe, on, uh, on your handout, a illustration by Thomas Nast, which, by the way, the themes of Christian reconciliation leap out at you. Perhaps it seems to some that this would be a sacrilege, but it wasn't at all. This was after Lincoln's assassination that this, uh, this huge two-page uh, two illustration was published in, in uh, Harper's Weekly. So that's interesting. And uh, s what you can see from it is that it invites Americans to witness the end of the Civil War and the Union's victory as the work of God. It celebrates Union victory, but also prepares the ground for reconciliation. In the middle, you see, blessed are the peacemakers. This betrayal of the Christian spirit of reconciliation is not wholly unfamiliar, even in our more secular time. We, too, are called constantly, constantly to make new beginnings in relationships between nations, races, classes, family, and friends, and yes, even political parties. <laughs> I only knew what was in my mind, General Ulysses S. Grant said, describing his feelings as he sat down to write out the terms of surrender. That early spring day represented the apex of Grant's military career. His prominence, only secondary to his president, revealed his view that when the war was over, there should be no vindictive policy toward the enemy, revealed his agreement with Lincoln that favored clemency, generosity, love, and mercy, revealed his belief that Reconstruction would not and should not be simply an indulgent in revenge or retaliation. Grant's sentiment and his judgment joined him firmly with his president's vision of a Reconstruction policy conducted with as little rancor as possible. 
Grant's final sentence made the military surrender into a peace agreement. He did what Lincoln told him not to do that would set the stage for reconciliation. Now, that reconciliation would not be in the near future, but it would be sometime in a few generations. If we look at the big picture, I believe restoration of the Union, troubled, incomplete, bitter, and violent in the shorter term, should be, could be described as a success. Grant's terms offered peace and reconciliation to those who would embrace it. Because the final part, that sentence, packed so much punch, some have pointed out that Grant intruded into political reconstruction by fleshing out, by defining the conditions and consequences of the parole he was offering in those terms to the soldiers of every major Confederate army in the field. The Union commander who had accepted the cruelties of a hard war and who waged that hard war without any illusion that victory could be achieved without fighting, who had borne the personal responsibility of bringing immense sacrifice on the part of both soldiers and civilians, also never forgot the ultimate goal of restoring a peaceful union, a lesson that would foreshadow his dominant role in the Johnson administration and his presidency overseeing reconstruction policy. This talk has been about Grant and Appomattox and the surrender that marked the end of the war. In the context of the Civil War, a military or a political surrender is defined as giving up something valuable, a fortress, an army, a defined territory, a country, a set of demands to an enemy. It can also mean something beautiful, tender, or forgiving. It can mean surrendering to a lover or surrendering a soul to God. It can mean a surrender of individual selfishness to a greater good. Appomattox was certainly a site of brutal warfare and conflict, but it was also a site of reunion, a site of reconciliation, and immediately a, a place of sacred memory. The scars of this awful war were too deep to heal easily or quickly. Magnanimity in the moment of victory proved easier than true loving reunion. The challenge of building a new society in the South that included both black and white on equal terms proved impossible. There would be reconstruction, restoration, and political and economic accommodation, but precious little reconciliation between the two countries. Perhaps no true reunion by our 21st century frame of reference. What there was came out of Appomattox and its surrender agreement, an act of mercy which secured the United States for all time and within time maybe just enough reconciliation that kept the spirit of unity alive. The complex nature of surrender during the Civil War encompassing hatred and love, despair and hope, bitterness and forgiveness can somehow be summed up in one deceptively simple sentence, I only knew what was in my mind. Thank you.
Are you all ready to go to church now? <laughs> I wish I could say that Grant came to this church many times to St. John's, but I don't think so. He was not a church-going man. It's a great question, and it's yes. I, I'm 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 just about to repeat it. It's what what does parole mean? What does it mean to observe your parole? Well, during uh, parole, uh, a piece of paper with your name and and your signature on it uh, guaranteed that you would not take arms take up arms again. Uh, and and there, uh, Grant paroled an entire army of thirty thousand at Vicksburg, so so that was um, that was also an act of generosity. In this case, uh, it 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 provided the the paperwork that was necessary. And if you violated your parole, you and uh, you could be arrested, and you wouldn't want that to happen. But I, no one was ready to fight again after Appomattox and after, in 1864 and 1865, that, uh, for the most part. That would come a little bit later. Question. The, the question is, the question is, how could you... How could you uh, parole 30,000 Confederate uh, soldiers at, at, um, at Vicksburg? Nobody was paroled at Fort Donelson. They were all sent he, the, at Fort Donelson in 1862. This, uh, the fall of Fort Donelson and Grant was the first major victory for the Union in the war. And... He, he accepted the surrender of 15,000 soldiers for after the uh, fall of Fort Donelson. And what was inter what's interesting about that is that, as we know, if you have any information or, or knowledge of the Civil War, neither side was pre prepared for the war and the consequences of battles. 15,000 soldiers at Fort Donelson surrendered. They had no idea what to do with them and what they had to do in the north. They had to send all the soldiers on boats um, opening up new prisoner of war camps. But they, they, were, uh, they would be exchanged uh, for, uh, for Confederate prisoners. Within a year, all those 15,000 uh, 15, were done. But at Vicksburg, Grant paroled 30,000. And by the way, the... the 15,000 surrendered at Fort Donelson in 1862. 15,000, that was the entire U.S. Army uh, at the beginning of the Civil War. So this, these are the kind of numbers that are so extraordinary. But Grant decided to parole all the, um, uh, the, the Army, John Pemberton's Army, invested in Vicksburg because he didn't want to send them to prisoner of war camps. He didn't want to uh, detach troops to have to follow them. And his thinking was that they were sick and tired of the war and a lot of them would never go back. 
and he wrote about this. He wrote about it at the time, and he wrote about it in his memoirs. He thought, well, they, they'll, this, is, this is a gesture that will have some meaning that might give us hope for reunion and reconstruction. And the thing is that I've read the, the communications uh, after between Jefferson Davis and Joe Johnston and John Pemberton after, and uh, after the surrender, and they wanted to get those, those 30,000 men back. They weren't coming back. They were supposed to go to uh, a camp in Alabama set aside for them, and, and Jefferson Davis said, where are, where are they? Well, they're in Texas. I mean, that's where they were, a lot of them. We don't have the precise numbers. Uh, 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 they did, some of them did come back. A lot of them did not. What history is there of communications between Grant and Lee after the war and before they were dead? <laughs> well, Lee was dead within three years. Uh, but what history, uh, they met the next day, and the question is, what, what was the communication between Grant and Lee? Were they best buddies after the war? The answer is no. But I have to say that the public persona of Robert E. Lee was completely in the spirit of Appomattox. Privately, he, he didn't like Reconstruction. He didn't like, uh, he was horrified at the consequences of emancipation. But publicly, he supported the, uh, um, the reunion and did not want a, uh, any kind of conflict to continue. But uh, they saw each other the day after the battle, just talked about a few, uh, tied up a few loose ends. And uh, when Grant was, was president, uh, when he was elected president, I think it was in 1869, Robert E. Lee came to the White House, and they had a visit. And there, there was no bug in the office. There was no, neither one of them talked about it. And or wrote about it, and and that's so. At, I believe Lee died in 1870. He was the um, he was the um, <clears throat> president of Washington College, now Washington and Lee College. Now we have to take the Lee off. But, I mean, there's a movement to take to take Lee's name off the college. It's uh, I have a, a a senior thesis student who's comparing the origins and the early history. Of, of the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C. You've probably seen it. And, and uh, Arlington House, which actually was, um, the, 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 in 1955, there was legislation passed to make Arlington House a monument to Robert E. Lee. And, and in the language of the legislation, it's really fascinating, and the debate uh, about it, it was, in, it was Lee as the president of Washington and Lee and a symbol of reunion and reconciliation uh, and not as the general who... Yes, Pers it, 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 that's in his private correspondence. Lee was horrified at the consequences of emancipation. He didn't believe uh, and and it's hard to, uh, it is the 150th anniversary now of Reconstruction. 
Reconstruction is so complex, so contradictory, so crazy uh, that it's hard to get people interested in it. When, I'm, when, I, when I finish, I'm teaching my Civil War class at UCLA now, and I finish with the war, they don't want to hear about Reconstruction. I make them hear about it. But it's, it's a really, uh, it's a fascinating time in our history, and, and I hope that uh, there'll be a renewed appreciation. It's just that the Civil War is so tidy. I mean, it, it does end, I mean, it has all these great figures, and whereas Reconstruction, because of, of uh, a gen several generations of lost cause historians, is just, it's still just a period that people just want, they just want to take a, a headache pill and, and go for a nap.